and by virtue of the power, and for the purpose aforesaid, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are and henceforth shall be free, and that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain freedom of said persons. This is some of the text of the Emancipation Proclamation, which went into effect on January 1st, 1863. This is Henry Wilson and the Civil War. We ended last episode with the Emancipation Proclamation that went into effect on January 1, 1863. The executive order legally emancipated over 3.5 million of the over 4 million enslaved people in the nation. While the formerly enslaved individuals were free in law, very few saw their freedom realized. Confederates, of course, contended that Lincoln had no jurisdiction to make the order since the rebellious states considered themselves to be not a part of the Union. Because of this, there was no action in freeing enslaved people, but the change in law did pave paths towards true freedom. Any Union army that took control of an area now had the authority and requirement to see that the black inhabitants be given their freedom. The proclamation also enticed individuals to run away to the North, where their freedom would be guaranteed. Many blacks who fled to the north joined the Union Army in order to fight the forces which had enslaved them for centuries. As we covered last episode, due to Wilson's pressure, Lincoln became more open to the idea of drafting blacks into the army. Wilson believed, and would be proved correct, that if black Americans were given more responsibility in the war effort, the generally racist America would feel indebted to their service and therefore be more open to extending and ensuring equal rights after the war. Other Northerners wanted blacks to serve in order to take the brunt off the whites and do more of the dirty and unsavory jobs the service required. In February and March 1861, Wilson ignored two letters from an employee at the patent office named Clara Barton. Mrs. Barton had become interested in Wilson's work in the Senate and desired to have a correspondence with him over the conditions of her office, especially regarding the treatment of women. Barton managed to grab Wilson's ear, likely after being introduced by Charles Sumner. The two struck up a conversation and continued their discussions late into the night in Wilson's hotel. Just like Wilson, Barton was from Massachusetts and both cared greatly about the rights of freed and enslaved black people, as well as the conditions of the men in service. Throughout the war, Wilson and Barton maintained a strong friendship and worked closely together in working to improve the health and treatment of soldiers. At some points, Wilson and Barton would see each other on a daily basis. Clara Barton worked as a nurse in the early days of the war and quickly grew the trust of officers to work the front lines, taking care of wounded soldiers and leading field hospitals. 
Barton's hands-on activities allowed for Wilson to have a better understanding of what needed to be funded and how money would best be used in military hospitals. Barton went on to continue to be influential in the war effort and went on to found the American Red Cross. Here again is Senate historian Betty Coed. He also worked very closely with uh, Clara Barton, who's famous for eventually founding the American Red Cross. But during the Civil War, she was a former government clerk who became a nurse and went to the battlefields. And she formed a very close relationship with Henry Wilson as they brought the medical treatment they needed and other resources they needed to, to soldiers on the battlefield. And that relationship continues through the war and to the post-war when she's helping to reunite soldiers with families, but also to inform families of the soldiers they had lost to the war, the, those who had died in action or were missing, missing in action. We'll look more at Barton as we continue on. Throughout the early months of 1862, Wilson had been working tirelessly to manage the legislative affairs of the war, visiting and inspecting regimental conditions, and fighting for the rights of black Americans. When in Washington, Wilson's schedule was long and grueling. He would wake up at 8 a.m., have a quick breakfast, then have some morning meetings and speak with different representatives until 11 when he would meet with the Military Affairs Committee for about an hour. From 12 until late in the afternoon, he would remain in the Senate and participate in proceedings. At around 5 or 6, he would eat a quick dinner and receive some letters and read the latest papers. After that, he would head to the White House for meetings with Secretary of War Stanton and President Lincoln. His meetings with them would finish around 9 p.m., and he would head back to his room in his shared home and work on papers and drafting bills and notes for the coming days. Wilson would get to bed around 2 a.m. What would Wilson's usual day look like in the Senate? What kinds of papers would he be looking at? And what were the specific things that he would be doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, most importantly, as chairman of the Military Affairs Committee, he would be looking at reports from the executive branch from, from the military about various battle practices. He'd be looking at reports of successes and failures on the battlefield. And most importantly, importantly, he'd be looking at reports on the need for and the effectiveness of military weapons and other sorts of military material. And uh, because it's obviously it's Congress's role to fund, <clears throat> excuse me, it's Congress's role to fund those efforts. And so in order to be sure that he's giving the oversight he needs to the executive branch, but also to ensure he's getting the information he needs to keep the funding going. And uh, he, he would be looking very closely at all these sort of uh, financial reports, uh, reports of um, battlefield, not necessarily the tactics or the strategy of battlefields, but more about the results of the the skirmishes and the different battles and the results of the the assessments of those on the ground as to how well the army was was uh, equipped for for those battles. So it would be very much investigative types of information he'd be looking at. And those, you know, 
he had many other things that dealt with other aspects of legislating at the time that weren't related to the war. But in terms of the war itself, it would be very much geared towards looking at the reports and things that would guide him towards where the funding would go. You know, at this time in the war years, there was no committee on appropriations yet. That didn't come until 1867. And so during the war years, it was the individual committees like the Military Affairs Committee that were really into the, the details of military funding. So that's what Lincoln would be. That's what Wilson would be looking at at this time period. Anyone who's doing this much work with so little rest is bound to hit a health decline. And Wilson was no exception. In mid-June, Wilson became very ill and was unable to continue his daily activities in the Senate. Though he was only absent a few days, Wilson remained ill throughout July. In a letter, Wilson downplayed his illness to Harriet, though I'm sure she read about his sickness that was being reported in national papers. Wilson traveled to Natick in mid-July and took some rest, though his work never stopped. Wilson working at 50% capacity was equivalent to his hardest working colleagues on their best day. Not long after his few weeks of rest, Wilson was back to his usual grind. For added stress, he was thrown into the middle of a growing divide between the president and the Union's top general. General George B. McClellan became the commander of the Union Army following the First Battle of Bull Run. McClellan, a West Point graduate like so many on both sides of the war, was previously a railroad president before becoming the leading general. The general's work with the railroad stopped when he joined the Army, though his affiliation with the Democratic Party didn't. Lincoln and McClellan came to their posts from different ideological standpoints, and as the war went on, their political rifts began to shift into military matters. The president pressured the commanding general to press harder on the Confederates and take a more offensive approach at capturing the rebels, but McClellan resisted. The tension reached a climax following the Battle of Antietam when McClellan declined Lincoln's repeated orders to chase after General Robert E. Lee's fleeing army. Lincoln believed that a swift capture of Lee and a clear victory at Antietam would strengthen the North's position and boost the morale of the public in the depressed year of 1862. President Lincoln had become fed up with the general and removed him from his post on November 6, 1862. Henry Wilson was never fond of McClellan, though he contended that he never pressed Lincoln to remove him, nor that he made any decisions in the command of any officer in the army. While McClellan's leading military service ends here, We'll be looking at him on a different stage in 1864. Following McClellan, General Ambrose Burnside took command of the army, but was replaced just a couple months later following the loss at Fredericksburg. Lincoln then appointed General Joseph Hooker, who was replaced in June of 1863 with General George G. Meade. In December of 1862, Wilson visited the soldiers who had just faced a great defeat at Fredericksburg. As I mentioned in the last episode, Wilson was with Lincoln in the White House when word of the battle's losses were conveyed. Wilson jumped into action, visiting the wounded men and assessing the situation. As 1863 progressed, military legislation was demanded more than ever. While the nation's mood was dull, this only pushed Wilson to work harder. 
Wilson was very hands-on, being asked to visit and assess many camps by President Lincoln. Wilson visited troops in Alexandria, Virginia, to find they had very thin resources and were in great need of medical attention. To the surprise of the soldiers, Wilson visited them again just a few days later to deliver the resources they requested. Wilson cared greatly for the state of the soldiers, not only in terms of the military abilities and supplies, but for their conditions as humans. Wilson succeeded in getting his bills passed, which took disabled soldiers out of service and provided soldiers with tobacco for their enjoyment. For months, as the Army was continuing to be depleted, Wilson worked at establishing a national conscription. A bill was needed to unify the state's drafts to raise more men. Drafts had been happening, but only on the state level. A national draft had been avoided for many months, as any draft would be very unpopular. The act called for all men between the ages of 20 and 45, with exceptions for those who couldn't serve due to a disability or their sole care for a child. Much to his chagrin, it was Wilson's responsibility to get the unpopular bill through Congress as he became its key proponent. Along with the exceptions for ability and guardianship, there was also an exception for those who could pay a $300 fee or pay another man to substitute their service, essentially allowing some with the means to buy themselves a free pass from the draft. Wilson argued that the substitution clause was to reserve those who were active in the war effort but in a non-military role, like those making weapons, farming, or serving the culture in some way, though in reality the substitutions worked well to keep wealthy men out of having to serve. Wilson remained steadfast in ensuring that members of Congress wouldn't be excluded from the draft, keeping a principled approach to the contested bill. When confronted with the effectiveness of the Confederacy's draft, which offered very few exemptions, Wilson noted that the South's draft resulted in them, quote, having no commerce, no mechanical arts, no agriculture, and nothing but a bankrupt treasury, a ruined people, and an absolute military despotism, end quote. The Conscription Act encountered great opposition, and many senators hurled insults and charges at Wilson. Many argued that the bill was a violation of liberty and a deferment of states' rights, though Wilson countered that a federal draft was constitutional and necessary in the time of war. Senators from the border states argued that the reasons their men weren't volunteering was because the war had gone for the purposes of stopping the rebellion and unifying the country to crushing slavery. In the end, Wilson won, and the Conscription Act passed, though seeing its goals come to fruition proved to be even more of a challenge. When it was time for a draft to be enforced, riots broke out throughout major cities in the North, including Boston. As flawed as it was, Wilson stood by his mission to build the needed draft as criticisms and opposition continued to mount. Democrats attempted to tarnish Wilson with the nickname the Father of Conscription. Though unpopular, the draft was successful and resulted in hundreds of thousands joining the army by both force and coercion. Lincoln found that threatening the use of a national draft was effective in raising the number of state quotas and volunteers.
Even while Wilson was focused on military affairs and civil rights, he managed to work on other legislation disconnected from the war. One, Wilson had participated in some of the ongoing debates regarding the Pacific Railroad, which we'll go a little more into later. And second, one of the most notable achievements of his career, he introduced the legislation founding the National Academy of Science. Helping to tell the story of the founding of the National Academy of Science is Professor Daniel Kevlis. My name is Dan Kevlis, K-E-V-L-E-S, uh, and I'm a professor emeritus of history at Yale University. Uh, I have worked uh, for a long time, well, most of my professional career, in the history of science and technology and its uh, uh, interplay with American, largely American society. Uh, I uh, am also co-authoring a history of the uh, National Academy of Sciences, and it's a consulting project for me. And I'm um, responsible for the, uh, the history of the Academy from its founding in 1863 through the end of the Second World War. And what I'm going to talk about today comes from the research I've done on that project. Wilson had been acquainted with an informal group of Boston scientists who titled themselves the Scientific Lazzaroni. The group's leaders had been working to organize a more official organization to incorporate many of the scientific minds of the day and better spread scientific knowledge throughout the nation. The two main leaders of this scientific community pushing for a national academy was Louis Agassiz and Alexander Bache. So there is no single background to the uh, academy. Uh, it comes out of uh, ideas and initiatives advanced by uh, a small group of uh, scientists, some of whom were in government, some of whom were at Harvard mainly, uh, one of whom um, was uh, at the Smithsonian Institution uh, in the uh, roughly 10, 12 years before the creation of the Academy in March, 1863. So the Civil War changed everything, right? Because suddenly the South, including Jeff Davis, was out of the Union uh, and uh, well, the people in power uh, were uh, in favor of an enlarged federal role in American life. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar uh, as a student of the Civil War era uh, with the congressional initiatives and uh, the Homestead Act, the uh, Transcontinental Railroad, uh, the um, Morrill Act for the creation of, of, um, of the land-grant universities, uh, and so on. <clears throat> and uh, it seemed that uh, the Congress would be well disposed uh, towards uh, establishing a scientific body like the Academy. The Congress, however, had a lot else on its mind uh, during the uh, early years of the Civil War, uh, starting with uh, uh, doing what was necessary to maintain the survival of the Union. So they didn't really get onto it <clears throat> until 1863, but at the time they did, um, the uh, Beach and Agassiz, uh, at the time they did, Beach had come to play a major role uh, in the mobilization for the war on the part of the Union. The Coast and Geodetic Survey provided crucial maps uh, 
It was the only agency that had maps, uh, crucial maps for uh, the, the southern the coastal regions of the South, the Mississippi, uh, the banks of the Mississippi and inland some, uh, and also for the harbors on the uh, East Coast, including in the region of the South, where the, uh, the Union forces uh, wanted to invade. And so um, Beige became uh, closely related to uh, uh, McClellan, uh, the uh, chief of the Union forces, uh, closely allied with uh, or involved with, with McClellan, the chief of the Union forces, because he had the maps and McClellan really valued them. And the Coast Survey was crucial in the Battle of, of Port Royal, for example, in late, eight, I think it was late 1862, uh, uh, because of the maps that they provided. So uh, in uh, early 1863, in February 1863, uh, the, um, uh, the government, meaning uh, the secretaries of war and Navy, uh, appointed a permanent technical commission that included Bache and others uh, to advise the armed forces on uh, uh, ideas for, of inventions uh, that would aid the war effort. So they were, Beach was web, extremely well placed, okay, uh, in the government uh, as a result of his leadership of the Coast Survey during the war. He was much better placed than he had been, say, in 1860, although he was highly regarded at that time. Enter Agassiz as an activist then. So he's in Cambridge, Massachusetts where he's now a professor of Harvard uh, and had uh, and was a, a major figure in Boston cultural political society, that, that sort of a slice of Boston society where people of, uh, cultivated people in politics and people of culture interacted. Um, and uh, he was a very good friend of Charles, Senator Charles Sumner, who was himself a, a fan of science and also of learning. Uh, and he talked to Chum Sumner in early 1863 about the idea of an academy. Sumner was all for it, but he was extremely busy, uh, as you can imagine. And he said that he would like to take this. He, he really couldn't take it up at, the, at that time. So what Agassiz did was to turn to Senator Wilson, who was an exemplar as you well know, uh, of the uh, enlargement of the welfare powers of the federal government. Uh, he was a staunch supporter of labor. He was uh, staunchly abolitionist. Uh, he uh, was an enthusiast, enthusiast of the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and he supported the, the um, Homestead Act, et cetera, et cetera. So he said that, yes, he was sympathetic to this, he told Agassiz, and he said, but he said, I'm really not a, a, a major figure, you know, in the area of science, we're very knowledgeable about it. And Aggie said, oh, no, no problem, no problem. You should get to know Alexander Dallas Bache, who lives in Washington. He lived in a, uh, in a home uh, just to the south, southeast of the capital. And, and, and Agassiz told Beach 
uh, Ag I'm sorry, Agassiz told Wilson before Bache got in touch with him that Bache could tell him, could figure out the plan for the academy so that Wilson wouldn't have to worry about uh, coming up with a plan on his own. So Bache got in touch with Wilson and he and Wilson met uh, on, I think, um, a Thursday or a Wednesday uh, in um, uh, early March or late February of 1863 at um, Bates' home. And uh, Bates said that they had in mind to create an academy that would advise the government and would provide funds for uh, to support the research of its members. Uh, and, and the government would also support the activities of the academy as well. Uh, and it would uh, be uh, contribute to the making of public policy that was science related, technology, technologically related. The French Academy limited itself to 50 members. And that's what Bage proposed for the initial membership of the academy. Wilson had no problem with that, but Bage said that uh, he didn't want to uh, offend the members of the American scientific community by naming all 50 members himself or in collaboration even with Agassiz uh, and the small group who cared about this, who were involved in it. And so what they had in mind was to name 20 founders and then they would consult, once the academy was created, consult in the scientific community, discuss the matter among themselves, and fill out the rest of the membership, the additional 30. Wilson said, no way. If the academy, is, if the Congress is going to uh, create the academy, it's going to want to know all 50 names of all 50 members right from the outset in the authorizing legislation. He also said, you can't, we cannot give the authorized academy uh, an appropriation for the academy. Because if their appropriation is concerned, that has to go before the House, it has to meet as a committee of the whole in the, in the way that appropriation authorizations are normally done. And this is now the end of the, not only the congressional session in the late February, beginning of March of 1863, it's also the end of the Congress that had been elected, that had come into office in March of 1861. Bates says, okay. Uh, and uh, he said that uh, he would gather together uh, some people. He had some guests coming anyway uh, to his house in the next couple of days. And Wilson would come back and they would all uh, have for him a full plan, including the names of the people. So Wilson came back on the Friday uh, and Bates and his allies, which included Agassiz. Agassiz happened to be in town for another purpose. And by the way, mm -hmm. to step back for a minute, uh, an important fact I forgot to mention, that uh, Wilson was an admirer of Agassiz, uh, enough so that before Agassiz brought this up the academy to him, he was nominated, he had uh, <clears throat> decided to nominate uh, Agassiz as a member of the Board of Regents of the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, so that's why Agassiz approached Wilson, uh, because he thought, well, if he thinks well enough of me to be involved in the Smithsonian, uh, then uh, I can propose to him uh, the academy. And if he's, he, Wilson was also one of the regents, a member of the regents, uh, and uh, I can uh, hope that he would be in favor of the creation of the academy. 
So coming back to the meeting in Beach's house, <clears throat> Agassiz comes and Wilson comes, Beach is there, and there are a few others. Uh, and they present um, Wilson with a list of names that they had drawn up themselves without consulting anybody uh, that day, all right? Uh, Wilson says, fine. And then he had two other caveats having to do with money that the Academy could not get any grants as such from the government. Only it could get, it could only receive grants in payment of expenses for any work it might do for the government. Uh, so it was, he was making sure that there was no, the Academy, the initiative for the Academy could not be uh, a charge by anybody in the Congress with as simply a way of scientists getting money. So they gave him a bill, a draft bill with the names. And he introduced it into Congress the following week on the last day of the session and of the Congress. Uh, and he asked for the unanimous consent saying there's nothing controversial here. Uh, he didn't, as I recall, he didn't even do much to describe what was in the bill. It had just created a group of, uh, an organization of science, scientists that will help the government. The Senate passed it without debate. The House did the same and it went to Lincoln for signature. And that was the creation of the Academy. Growing from a childhood devoid of formal education, Wilson cherished this moment for the rest of his life and was forever proud of his contribution to American scientific knowledge. Today, the National Academy of Science is still active in providing the nation with top scientific research and knowledge, and is yet another example of Henry Wilson's honorable contribution to the nation. If you're interested in learning more of the story behind the founding of the National Academy of Science, listen to the latest bonus episode with my full interview with Professor Kevlis. While the Union was in a sullen mood from the major losses obtained in the battles of 1862 and those in the early months of 1863, the Battle of Gettysburg in July marked a turning point in the war. The North and South had different ideas of what success meant. The North was essentially fighting to conquer the Confederacy and bring the rebellion to an end, while the South was primarily looking to bring recognition to the Confederate States of America. General Robert E. Lee's strategy was essentially to deplete the resources of the North and bring Northern morale to the point of surrender. In an effort to deal a final blow to Northern morale, Lee pushed North towards Pennsylvania. Lee entered Pennsylvania through Maryland by way of Virginia and began to travel North, making a hook-like shape around the approaching Union forces under the direction of General Meade, who had just been replaced as the head of the Union Army following General Hooker's resignation. Lee was attempting to surround Meade, who was coming north from the eastern side of Maryland. Throughout the two armies' travels, they had at times many skirmishes, though nothing as devastating as their chance encounter at Gettysburg. A small band of Confederate forces saw Union cavalry troops in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and quickly alerted the much larger army approaching the town. 
The Confederates believed the troops they saw were just members of the Pennsylvania militia who could easily be put down by the Confederate force, though they would be wrong, and when forces began to attack, the bulk of the Army of the Potomac would be called for reinforcements. The fighting began in Gettysburg, with Confederates holding a strong but scattered position pushing the Union back. On the second and most grisly day of fighting, the Union organized a strategic defensive position, forming what's best described as a fishhook, fighting the offensive Confederates on every side. Both sides pushed and pulled throughout the day with heavy losses. The Union appeared to be at a disadvantage, though they were able to hold their ground until the third day. On the third day, the Union took a strong position and fiercely fought the Confederates in artillery fire and hand-to-hand -hand fighting. The Confederates charged toward the Union line and succeeded in capturing cannons, though following reinforcements, the Union was able to put up a fight and retake their positions, forcing the Confederates to retreat. After failed planning by Lee, the Confederates had a low chance of being successful in a counterattack and retreated back towards Maryland. The Union succeeded at Gettysburg, but not without great losses on both sides. After the three days of fighting, the United States faced 23,000 casualties, with Confederates having 28,000. The battle was one of the bloodiest of the war and had the highest number of generals killed. Henry Wilson's 22nd Regiment fought in Gettysburg and was reported to have lost around half its men. Just a few days after the battle, Wilson traveled to Gettysburg to see the damages and take care of all of the wounded which had been reported. One soldier noted that Wilson was one of the first civilians to visit the infirmaries and promised to use his influence with Lincoln to guarantee the men would be taken care of. The Battle of Gettysburg turned the tide of the war and gave the Union the drive to push on. In today's episode, we covered the Emancipation Proclamation, Wilson's push to allow black Americans to serve in the Army, Wilson's work with Red Cross founder Clara Barton, and the shakeup in the Union Army leadership. We also discussed Wilson's contentious bill to expand the draft and Wilson's legislative founding of the National Academy of Science. We ended by looking at the Battle of Gettysburg. A special thank you to Professor Daniel Kebles for telling the founding story of the National Academy of Science. And thank you to Wilson biographer John L. Myers. Be sure to listen to the bonus episode featuring my full interview with Professor Kebles telling the full story of the founding of the National Academy of Science. If you're interested in seeing the signing portrait of President Lincoln with Henry Wilson after signing the NAS into law, head over to henrywilson.com and search National Academy of Science in the search bar. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send an email to henrywilsonpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to moving forward in the Civil War. Mm -hmm.